Hey, everybody. Welcome to Why It Matters, the podcast for the dreamers and the driven. We're changing the world their way. As a managing director at Lime Timber, Peter Stein and his team answer one of the toughest questions about the climate crisis. How can we continue to build infrastructure that welcomes more people into the modern economy while conserving the natural state of our environment? Their answer is to have a more balanced relationship with the resources that we use to build society. Instead of squeezing the land for every dollar they can get from it, Peter focuses on keeping the forest economically productive while protecting the ecological and biological diversity of the lands. Before we listen to his story, everybody take a second to settle in, appreciate where you are, and take a deep breath with me. And now, off to the episode. And we are live. Peter Stein, welcome to Why It Matters. Nice to be with you, Luke. I'm excited for this episode and to jump into an area that I don't know too much about. And I think that a lot of people fail to understand. Um, But before we do, I would love to know more about you. So who is Peter and what gives you purpose? Um, So I live in Norwich, Vermont. We're lucky to live in the Green Mountain State and have lived here for 30 years. Prior to that, lived in New York and San Francisco. I was one of the founding staff of an environmental land conservation NGO called the Trust for Public Land, which is still a very much wonderful, creative, exciting organization. Uh, But I joined the private investment world 30 years ago uh, to begin to try to work at forest conservation at scale. And uh, that's kept me excited and interested and motivated for the last three decades. So what is forest conservation and why does it matter? Well, I think we all like uh, good, clean drinking water. Uh, We all like wildlife habitat. We all like places to recreate in the outdoors. Uh, And I think we're learning over the last decade or so uh, of the role that forests play in uh, addressing some of the challenges of climate change. So conserving forests can happen by public agencies like the U.S. Forest Service or the National Park Service. It can happen by state and local governments, but it can also happen in the private sector. And so Lime Timber, which is the firm that I work at, has pioneered a number of strategies that allow us to make a good financial investment in forest land, but also durably conserve the forest as well. Keep it a forest uh, as, as opposed to seeing it subdivided into little pieces or converted to intensive agriculture or residential development. So. I was reading on your website that forests store and filter half of the nation's water supply, which is hard to think about and imagine and kind of internalize because when you look at a forest, you're like, it's a bunch of trees and and dirt and leaves and, you know, and so I think that point 
goes to what you're talking about that like these this this place these trees are really important just because of that fact and you think of the ocean um, that has water but the forest and its system of filtering and using water is really important for us too yeah. uh, and so in addition to that you guys mentioned that forests are responsible for sequestering or taking out 15 percent of domestic fuel emissions so in addition to the water thing they're also really important in solving this carbon issue that we have um, and I'd love to touch on another part of the importance of forests, which is the biological and the ecological diversity. And I, don't, I think that's something that a lot of people, you know, everyone like everyone wants more animals, right? Like, everyone would like wants more animals and to like, you know, keep them alive and it's all nice and stuff. But why at like a, a base level, why are those things important like in general and then also to, to us? Well, I think uh, they're, they're critically important. <laughs> and they're critically important to the animals themselves, but they're critically important to the human dimensions of the ecosystems that we all are part of. Uh, uh, I don't want to frighten anyone, but uh, if you think about COVID and the likelihood that there was a transference from animals to human, part of that transference occurred because of a destruction and diminution of the habitat of those animals. And all of a sudden, they were engaging, confronting, uh, mixing with human populations on a much greater basis than, than traditionally if their habitat had been conserved. So the fact of the matter is, uh, us humans gobble up habitat all the time. And uh, it would just be nice if we preserved it for the animals, but now I think we have to go beyond nice and we have to think about the public health benefits of biodiversity and habitat protection. So uh, besides COVID, think of, of the need for uh, wide ranging wildlife corridors. And if public land is at one end and public land is at, let's say that was the Southern end, and public land is at the northern end, the critters still have to get from one public land unit to another public land unit, and they're going across private land. So we uh, have been the private landowner that has helped foster or create those connections. Uh, so we have a great example in northwest Wisconsin where the 80,000 acres that Lime Timber acquired and invested in and work through partnerships with the Conservation Fund and the Nature Conservancy and Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, well, those 80,000 acres touch 950,000 acres of already conserved land. So absent giant pogo sticks that we could train the animals to use to jump, jump over the subdivisions or other things that could have happened on that property, and I'm not saying maybe that is a solution, but it's not the one I'm involved with, uh, conserving private land to continue those connections is critical as well. That's a great way of framing what you guys are doing uh, in terms also of what the context of today and also the context of like why it's important to connect all these things. Um, and so could you give a bit more of a description of like what is Lime Timber and how do you guys take a different approach to being a business and making money from an industry that so many people view as 
you know, it's harmful to the environment. It's like you see, there's a lot of classic images, I think, that are kind of pushed in our faces about, like, you have these huge forests being taken down and deforestation and all this bad stuff. And people really associate it with climate change and, and poor practices for the environment. And so what do you guys do? And what are you guys doing that's creating a, a good environment for the forests? Well, it's a, it's a great question. I think, I think there's a lot of um, simplistic notions out there. Uh, there's also some horrific examples like the deforestation of the Amazon and certain things that are happening uh, in uh, the boreal forest in Canada, the boreal forest in Russia, uh, certain parts of Africa where um, forest management techniques are not paying attention to biodiversity, not even paying attention to the surrounding human settlements and communities. Uh, so there's, you know, significant negative impacts. We've focused on natural forests uh, versus plantation forests. So forests that have lots and lots of different species and different habitats within the forest, uh, because those are the forests that have the recreational attributes. Think of the Appalachian Trail going from Georgia to Maine. Uh, just about the entire length of that trail are natural forests. There are a few farm fields that it skirts, but it's almost all natural forests. So our business has been to raise capital from family offices, institutions like foundation endowments and college endowments and insurance companies, and deploy that capital in a way that uh, makes a, a market rate return on the capital, but also delivers durable conservation and community development outcomes. And we started small, and we now um, have about a billion dollars of capital under management and own about 1.6 million acres across the U.S. Uh, and in each one of those ownerships, uh, we are pursuing different kinds of conservation transactions. We own land in northern Michigan that has uh, a national scenic trail, the North Country Scenic Trail on that property. And... 38 miles of that trail go through our property. So we're working with the National Park Service to create permanent public access to that trail through a, a mixture of, of fee sales and conservation easement sales. In, uh, in Alabama, uh, we own really critical biodiversity habitat uh, in Northern Alabama. And we were able to uh, essentially protect or, or conserve that habitat through the California compliance carbon offset market. So we registered that property and sold carbon credits that basically those credits manage our behavior and any future landowners behavior for the next hundred years. So we have to keep that forest stocked at a certain level for the next hundred years. Uh, and that is not public money, that's money that's coming from emitters in California who are mitigating a tiny fraction of their emissions through the purchase of carbon credits. So the next question I was gonna ask you, I think you explained half of it, which is the carbon credits thing. Um, but could you explain like the transactions and the mechanics of your business? Like I hear term that's like conservation easement. 
Um, and I can kind of understand what it means. Like you're trying to conserve something and there's a legal agreement. Like how does it actually, what is going on between the parties that are involved in the transaction? So it's um, conservation easements have been around in the United States uh, since the late 1930s. And it's really um, dissembling or disaggregating the bundle of property rights, the sticks in the bundle of property rights. So if you own a piece of property, you might be able to build a house on it. You might be able to drill a well and get oil out of it. You might be able to drill a well and get water out of it. You might be able to uh, mine it for gravel or copper or things like that. All of those are separate rights defined in the title to the property. And what we're doing, um, we are partnering usually with a, a state agency and they are purchasing some of those sticks, some of those elements of the bundle of rights. So in the case of a conservation easement, we are selling uh, essentially the right to make sure we never turn the property into a real estate development. We're also selling the right for the public to have recreational access on the property. And thirdly, we're selling the right to do uh, essentially better than letter of the law sustainable forest management. So most of our conservation easements require us to be third party certified as sustainable land managers. So it's like a financial audit. Uh, it's not a complete surprise, but we get a week of warning <laughs> and a team of auditors go out on our property and see if we, you know, didn't tuck a skyscraper into the back corner or didn't over harvest um, a valley or a certain portion of the property. And they do a report and Luke or any of your listeners, if you have trouble sleeping, you can read our audit reports. <laughs> They're available from the Forest Stewardship Council or the Sustainable Forestry Initiative, but they're quite thorough. And it gives us the ability not just to say we think we're doing sustainable forest management, but a third party is indicating that we're doing sustainable forest management. It's also been a way to attest or demonstrate compliance with that sustainability requirement in a conservation easement by having these third party audits. In addition to keeping the forest healthy through these agreements, Lime Timber plays a huge role in keeping the community of people around these places in a better place. And so could you talk about the interaction between the work that you're doing in the forests and the people that live in the community and how you're doing two things simultaneously through your work to improve both? Sure. Um, forestry is, a bit of a challenging profession. Uh, logging is one of the more dangerous professions in America, particularly when you look at premiums paid for workman's comp compensation insurance. Uh, so we've gone out of our way to build operating teams made up of community members um, in each of the geographies where we have an investment footprint. So in Florida, it's, it's just four people. In Michigan, it's 30 people. Uh, and what we're doing is hiring uh, seasoned professionals uh, in those communities uh, who might have worked for a consulting firm or might have worked for another ownership, but they are dedicated to our footprint, dedicated to our land. 
we're also investing in some of the value add businesses in those communities like uh, log marketing businesses, log concentration yards. In the case of North Central Pennsylvania, we are also the majority investors in two sawmills, which employ together uh, maybe 150 additional people. We think it's critical for the landowners to also be connected to the rural community development aspects of our work. Uh, as, as, you know, in many rural areas, they are depopulating because the quality of work is poor or it's dangerous or it's low wage. So we pay very good benefits. We provide training. Uh, we're uh, investing in remarkably sophisticated equipment. So we're finding that in West Virginia, uh, some of the best gamers in high school and junior college become our best employees because of the sophisticated level of the locking equipment that we're employing in those geographies. They also happen to be safer by working in enclosed cabs instead of being standing on a steep hillside with a very, chain, very heavy chainsaw to do logging. Uh, and from an environmental point of view, this equipment has less impact on the landscape uh, because of much less road construction. So they're all different dimensions of how we connect to communities in the Adirondacks where we own a lot of land. Uh, a multi-day mountain bike race takes place partially on our property. And it's a way of demonstrating the outdoor recreation benefits to that community. Um, more people are staying in B&Bs. Uh, folks are buying you know, food and gas and, and really driving uh, the local economy because of those recreational opportunities. I love the idea of creating a community, a greater community, not just around what you're doing as a company, but through like the impact that you have. That's, I feel like that's really, the word impact just demonstrates what you're doing and how you can have impact through what you're doing, but also what the externalities of what you're doing and how that can affect other people. So I think that's really cool and a model that other people can try to implement into things that they are doing and take a full look at the ecosystem in which you're operating and, and try to make sure that all those stakeholders are benefiting in some way like you guys are doing. Um, one thing I'm curious about is how you guys are operating within natural climate solutions. So you're doing things that are just like natural, you're helping conserve the forests, um, which is a big part of the climate solution as we've kind of discussed a bit. And there's also this other side, and there's many sides to the climate crisis, but another side specifically in dealing with carbon is the idea of sequestering carbon and taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And so what do you think about these technologies, like just from your own perspective? Because I think it's something that's not really talked about, but I, from someone who doesn't know much about it other than what it is, it just seems like it's pulling carbon from the air and that's great. But is there, and like, what do you, what do you feel about what's going on with this stuff? Well, I think, I think we all realize that, that it's kind of all hands on deck. <laughs> so if you said, well, great, natural climate solutions, but at best, natural climate solutions might sequester 30% of emissions if we get more land conserved, if we change land management practices to be more carbon friendly, more sequestration friendly. Uh, decarbonization schemes are critical, but that's a very new untested technology. 
so I hope it works. I wish it works. Um, I hope the private sector, particularly the emissions sector, invests in those things. Uh, I hope there are regulatory guidelines, rules that, that promote that. Uh, but the most important thing is, is to reduce the use of fossil fuels. Uh, and so that's why it, it really is all hands on deck. Uh, I think it's, you know, Lime Timber is happy to be part of the, the world of nat nature-based climate solutions or natural climate solutions. But uh, we still see that as, as important, but not uh, where the largest uh, change in, in emissions will take place. And the largest change will be the conversion to renewables um, and just being so more conscious as a society, whether it's food waste or fossil fuels, of, of what we're doing that, that uh, generates CO2. That, that part about consciousness, I was recently thinking about this in, in terms of the, the consumer, because I think you have these producers who are creating the energy, then you have other aspects of things that are degrading the climate um, on the producer side. And then you also have like the consumer side, which is like people and their habits and what they do every day. And that's something that's really difficult to change like people's psychology and their habits and you have these delivery apps which can give you food in, in 20 minutes without you having to leave your house and it's like that's really nice but like that's terrible that's really bad because you have the or, or at least they should be on a on an electric vehicle right <laughs> right so what's your perspective and maybe if you give a little insight about people you've talk to within Lime Timber and then the communities that you operate about like changing consumer behavior and having some type of hand and like showing people that there's another way to, to like operate. Well, um, you know, I, this may be unique to America, but we, we do tend to respond uh, or get motivated by natural disasters. So whether it's, you know, the intensity and scale of forest fires in the West, or the flooding that it took place in the Midwest over the last two years, um, or hurricanes, or sea, you know, uh, it's not just sea level rise, it's the intensity of coastal storms associated with sea level rise that I think we are beginning to see some behavioral changes. I wish uh, those behavioral changes would be caused by people reading you know, peer-reviewed journal articles and science journals, but that isn't how the world works. Uh, there are some, you know, I, I think there's some really positive uh, efforts going on right now around community-based climate resilience strategies uh, because climate change is costing particularly lower wealth communities a fortune, uh, you know, whether it's flood damage, uh, disruption from transportation networks, uh, power outages. Uh, so what used to be maybe viewed a little bit esoterically, uh, or it's not going to really impact us. Well, it is impacting us. It's impacting all of us. And I think we now have to think about responses to climate change as part of public infrastructure. Uh, just as we build roads or we build electric grids, we should be building 
climate resilience strategies into local communities. Uh, and that's being, beginning to happen in many places around the country. But that gives me a little bit of hope that, um, you know, if you think about some political jurisdictions like Florida, where you have a governor who is obviously uh, uh, unconscious about climate change, uh, but you have mayors in coastal cities who are doing remarkable things because they have, they're dealing with the direct day-to-day -day impacts of climate change. Uh, and I think it, it will be from the bottom up that we see these changes. Really? from on a, on a macro scale, when you say bottom up, because something that just graduating from college and just kind of being within like systems a lot of my life, it's, you have this kind of perspective, which I don't necessarily agree with, but just from my experience that a lot of change comes from a top down structure, um, decisions made at the top, things like that. So what do you, could you give a little bit more uh, of a description when you say bottom up? Because I think that's a, interesting perspective and something that I definitely tend to align more with. And so when you say bottom up, are you talking about like those kind of nodes in coastal cities and mayors who are creating that change or almost more of like a grassroots like person? No, I think, I guess I'm, I'm really thinking about levels of government and notwithstanding a, a Biden Harris administration that sort of gets climate change. They're, uh, you know, they're in this, political environment that is uh, rather complicated uh, between the House and the Senate and another party who doesn't really support a lot of climate change innovation um, versus local governments, whether they're blue or red, are getting floods. <laughs> local governments are being impacted by hurricanes. And so I see more action taking place at the local and state level, hopefully supported by federal legislation and federal policy versus a top-down directive to cause local governments to do things. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Um, could you talk a little bit about your perspective on what the U.S. government is doing with the America the Beautiful plan? So you're trying to conserve 30% of U.S. land and water by 2030. Um, and like, what do you, what do you think about that? Is it feasible? Can it happen? I'm, uh, I'm exceedingly enthusiastic, <laughs> okay. uh, but it is a big lift. It's a giant challenge. Uh, but uh, because of some of the things we've already talked about, uh, America the Beautiful is not an isolated activity. It includes nature-based climate solutions. It includes working lands. So if you said, to me, America the Beautiful means tripling the national park system. Well, personally, I might like that. I would say that's politically infeasible in America. But if we are actually looking at the full breadth of lands that can be conserved, so I'm talking about farms and ranches, I'm talking about forests, I'm talking about urban trees <laughs> and urban parks and close to home recreation. All of those are elements of America the Beautiful that get me pretty motivated and pretty excited. Um, at scale, I think some of the things that Lime Timber uh, has done and will continue to do will be part of delivering 30% by 2030. Uh, but I also think some of the work uh, that's going on in cities is critical to make sure that every American has access to open space, to functional parkland, 
within a certain walking distance of their home or for suburban and rural residents of America within a certain driving distance of their home. In the past, a number of the federal initiatives have not had what I would call an equity or an environmental justice component. And uh, literally the uh, America the Beautiful executive order is married to the Justice 40 executive order, which really does focus on communities that have been left out of things like the state side of the Land and Water Conservation Fund or the Migratory Bird Act funding uh, or some of the other federal programs such as the ones in the Farm Bill, which has not always been fairly distributed to Latinx or African-American producers, farmers. Uh, so I think that this administration in particular gets that, recognizes that, and, uh, and you will see a, I, I think you will see a, a more fair distribution of public resources to implement America the Beautiful. Could I be any more enthusiastic? <laughs> Man, if you believe in it, I'm all for it. Um, I would love to wrap up with a question about your vision for Lime Timber. Um, so what do, you, what do you see this being and how do you see it, how do you see it growing into something in the future? Um, I actually see us staying course. Uh, we may grow a bit, but I think we've grown significantly over the last 20 years. Uh, I think we have proven out a strategy that was viewed initially with skepticism, like why would you permanently restrict and encumber forest land with conservation easements? Well, now there are a dozen other timber investment management organizations out there that have either done that or acquired land subject to conservation easement. So it's almost becoming convention, which means that the private capital that is allocated to natural resource investments will play a significant role in things like America the Beautiful. Uh, or if you realize 30 by 30 is actually a global movement. Uh, didn't start here in the U.S. So there are a number of countries around the globe that are pursuing a 30 by 30 agenda. And then we get there, there may be a 50 by 50 agenda after that. So, um, you know, I think Lime Timber will still be an innovator in the space. Uh, we will grow a bit, but I think we're, we're kind of open to being copied <laughs> and, and uh, partner with other organizations to share our strategies. I really respect that a lot because I think a lot of organizations and companies within the U.S. and abroad are very focused on keeping proprietary information, strategies, relationships, things like that. And for you guys and yourself to say, hey, we, we want other people to do this because we're working towards a greater purpose. I think it's awesome, very admirable. And I'm I appreciate the perspective. I appreciate you sharing it with listeners because I think it's something that if other people can adopt and create this more of a open sharing economy, it would just be good for everyone just to grow and, and create better solutions like Lime Timber. Um, so Peter, thank you so much for coming on. This was a great conversation and a topic that you guys are a leader in and not many people know about. And so I really appreciate the exposure that you're giving a lot of people. Great. 
Well, pleased to be with you and uh, good luck. Thank you. And that wraps up today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, follow us on LinkedIn at Why It Matters and on Instagram at why underscore it underscore matters underscore. You will find our community of guests and listeners who are forming the next generation of changemakers. Come join the group of people leading humanity into the future. I'll see you all soon.